the number one answer, almost 82% of students said that good teaching, like engaged pedagogy, engaged teaching was the number one marker for a high quality university or high quality college for them. And so our students and families care about the quality of teaching. I have conversations with young people all the time and they'll say things like, oh, why would I go to college when I could just learn that on YouTube? Because YouTube doesn't have a degree in pedagogy. Now, mind you, our professors don't have degrees in pedagogy either. Like a lot of uh, the professors at the college level are not trained educators. And so how can we provide support to professors to not only bring their expertise when it comes to the subject matter into the classroom, but also develop their expertise uh, in awareness of student needs when it comes to uh, teaching and learning and getting the most out of, you know, allowing students to get the most out of their educational experiences. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. So welcome to episode six. Hard to believe that I've done six episodes of this and I'm really having a good time with it. So we're gonna jump right in to today's pod, which is gonna have a little bit of a different feel to it than some of the previous episodes. You know, I've been trying different formats, trying to make the show enjoyable for you all, uh, just like it is for me. And so uh, today's topic, we're gonna talk about the top five trends to look for in education in 2024 you know that'll be a fun one i gotta have the new segment that i just added to the show called the playbook where i give a page out of my playbook regarding student success and so i like to say this is one of the only podcasts where you're going to get stuff for staff faculty and teachers and students and so the playbook is my new student segment where i'm going to be able to outline some tips some helpful tips for the student listeners that i have and then we're going to lastly get to the weekly read and to start off again the top five education trends of 2024 number one you know we got to jump right into it that is artificial intelligence and the technology boom in education. And I've been reading a lot about education technology. Uh, I actually have the opportunity to present at the Future of Education Technology Conference in late January, I believe it's January 23rd to the 26th uh, in Orlando this year. That'll be a fun time. I need to talk a little bit about my work as an educator at Georgetown University. I do faculty development around inclusive pedagogy, but increasingly I've been in conversations with faculty around artificial intelligence in the classroom about technology-based and technology-integrated pedagogy. Uh, and I also teach a summer course for students, uh, specifically rising high school seniors from around the country that are hand-selected for a college immersion program uh, for high school students. And so that's an education technology course that is really introducing high school students to the field. And it's, you know, education technology is something that I'm super passionate about. Everyone that's listening to this knows that uh, AI is the future of education. Education technology is the future of education. And what I find most interesting is that 
we still talk a whole lot about AI, but a lot of people don't really know how AI works. And so I love the, uh, the ability and the opportunity to really break it down for students. Now in 2024, the big thing around AI is going to be multimodal AI. And so right now what we have is called uh, narrow AI or at least singular task AI is what some people would like to call it. And with narrow AI, it's an AI platform or an AI service that completes one type of task. And so you have some AI platforms like ChatGPT and Google Bard that are generative AI platforms. So you submit an, you know, a written prompt and it's gonna give you a written response. Um, you have uh, voice-based AI, so your Alexa, uh, and things of that nature where you can say something, give it a, a prompt or a command, and it's going to give you a voice-based response. Sometimes it might do something for you, like look something up on Google, uh, but a lot of that stuff is still voice-based. Now, you know, as we see developments in AI, we're gonna have multimodal AI, so you can type something into chat GPT and it can give you a photo, right? Or you can, be able to send a picture to Chad GPT and it could describe what's in the picture. I've seen really cool videos. Uh, some of them are, are doctored though, so you wanna be mindful of what you're watching out there, but uh, there are some videos that are mocking up artificial intelligence technology to where you can play card games with it. It's almost like a magician doing a magic trick and it could pick out where the four of diamonds is. If you actually like point your camera to your hands and you can do a magic trick and it can be able to uh, engage with you in that kind of way. Or it's that classic game where you have three cups, you have a little ball and you put one of the balls underneath the cup and you move them around and then the AI actually guesses which uh, cup has the ball underneath it. And so so really this technology is gonna take off. Imagine having a virtual assistant that can do multiple things for you. So not only be able to write complex emails or be able to you know, give you an outline for your paper, but it's also going to show you a diagram of what a particular mock-up um, of a business product could look like. It's gonna be able to show you, you know, step-by-step -step how to do a particular exercise at the gym, right? Like things like that, um, that are going to make learning a lot more interesting, a lot more interesting than uh, it already is. And so, yeah, AI is definitely one of the things that is going to be developing rapidly here. Um, I remember a TEDx talk that went pretty viral by Khan Academy CEO, um, and I forget, I'm forgetting his name, but he's the CEO of Khan Academy, which is an online learning platform uh, for students. They have tons of courses. They're really popular in the K through 12 space, and thinking of how a virtual assistant can kind of be a motivator for students, so using learning analytics, being able to track things like how long it takes students to uh, read, how long it takes students to submit assignments, how often students are logging in, what are the, the types of problems, the types of math problems, the types of science problems that students have the most challenges with, and being able to coach them through those problems in a way that's tailored to that student, being able to intervene in what we call 
uh, kind of like roadblock subjects, right? And so a student will do well all through math, but when they hit that third level of geometry, a lot of students struggle there and then they fall off. They might resign from the course or they might uh, drop out of the course. You know, how do we keep students engaged and be able to coach them through the things that are more difficult that a K through 12 teacher might not be able to put their hand on at a particular time. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about technology and education. I find it fascinating how technology is being used to strip technology from the classroom. And so we have these technological implementations specifically in K through 12 schools throughout the country where students' phones are being taken away and they are we have some school districts that are paying $50,000, $75,000, $100,000 for pilot programs in which students give their phones up at the beginning of the day. Those phones are put into a personalized sleeve for each student and it's closed via magnet, like via magnetic technology, and that magnet will not lift until the end of the school day. And so again, it's a way of stripping students from using technology in the classroom, but you're using technology to govern it and to do that. And so a lot of different things to pay attention to here. Uh, uh, the second trend that I want to talk about in 2024 is going to be the trend around free speech. And this is a huge topic specifically with this, with this being an election year, with the, the humanitarian crisis that is happening right now in Gaza and the West Bank, um, anti-Semitism and xenophobia being on the rise um, in, you know, within our educational institutions. This is a big talk around higher education, as we just saw uh, Claudine Gay resign as the former president of Harvard University. And we see still see bans on critical race theory. We still see uh, revisionist curriculum. We still see bans on uh, books and certain uh, you know types of books that feature historically marginalized uh, peoples as leading roles. When we talk about LGBTQIA plus representation uh, within our books, within our literature, a lot of those things are still being blocked. And so this whole conversation around free speech, what can be taught, what can't be taught in the classroom, what guest speakers are being invited to campus to really unpack a lot of these difficult conversations and discussions and then also how do we support students in having these conversations because even if they're not having them in the classroom where there is the potential for them to be facilitated by an instructor they're having them outside of the classroom they're having them on TikTok. they're having them on instagram they're having them as they walk through campus throughout the day especially i hear them at georgetown university i was struck by that like when i because i went to mcdaniel college which is a small liberal arts school in maryland and the conversations that I will hear at McDaniel sound completely different from the conversations that I hear at Georgetown University. Like every time I hear, you know, every time I walk by hearing students, students are not talking about the things that you would expect students to talk about. Like they are talking about public policy. They're talking about what they're seeing in their internships, in their uh, teaching practicums, in their in their nursing experiences. Uh, students are talking about what's happening in politics. I'm like, y'all, do y'all never stop talking? about it like y'all are so uh in tune into what's going on and i think it's uh 
there's the level of proximity. So being in DC, being close to what's happening and kind of the expectation to be knowledgeable about those things. But also we just have a lot of high achieving students. And so I'm always struck by uh, the things that students are most interested in talking about. And we see a lot of political demonstrations around the Palestinian Israeli uh, conflict that is happening right now uh, in the Middle East. And of course, I send my love and prayers to everybody who is affected by this. Uh, I have colleagues, coworkers, friends who are personally and directly impacted by this issue. Um, and I just wanna send my uh, condolences for everything that has been lost uh, in this process. And I, and I would hope that our educational institutions are places where learning and understanding around these issues can be developed, that we're not tiptoeing around these issues, that we give students the tools and even faculty and staff the tools to have these difficult discussions. And free speech is one of those things that is really difficult for me as someone who is often labeled as a DEI expert and someone who, uh, you know, I, I self-identify as someone who's in favor of free speech because I'm a truth seeker. And I think any opportunity to suppress speech is going to be used um, by white supremacist capitalist forces. And so if we try to censor speech that is harmful, those same institutions or those types of institutions that we would be trying to censor are going to censor uh, the voices that are most impacted by this issue, the voices that kind of go against, uh, you know, materialist, individualist, capitalist systems. So I try to keep all of that top of mind um, to, to not try to censor speech. Obviously, there has to be powers and processes in place that mitigate harm, um, that provide uh, consequences for harm, uh, but at the same time, our educational institutions, if we are not capable of having these difficult discussions, then which institutions in our society are capable of having them if we can't have them? And so that's just something to, to still pay attention to this year. Also, the value of college. Um, this is a big topic right now. Uh, we have the, the Value Commission, which is a commission of about uh, 30 commissioners from around the country. They've uh, put out a lot of research reports around the value of college when it comes to the effects that going to college has on student well-being, when it comes to financial well-being, when it comes to life satisfaction. They've done a ton of surveys and studies to show that there is still value in college. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of that message is, is being thwarted by um, our student debt crisis. And I do call it a crisis because um, it not only affects uh, all students that are in debt, but specifically those who are historically marginalized. And so in my first year in my graduate program at Georgetown, I did a whole project around how um, the student debt crisis is a well, eliminating the student debt crisis is an anti-racist intervention. And it's because student debt was born out of, you know, the increasing cost of college and putting that increased cost on individual families, which happened with uh, the Education Act, the Higher Education Act of 1965, and was further cemented via the Higher Education Act of 1972, uh, was really born out of racist ideologies. And so understanding that today, like currently, um, 
20 years after earning a degree, um, black, most 90% uh, of black borrowers have 90% of their uh, student debt still compared to just 10% of white borrowers who only have about 10% of their debt, right? So we're talking about uh, 10, 20, 15 years after graduation, uh, specifically black students still having trouble paying off their student loans uh, compared to uh, their white counterparts who also has student loans who have pretty much entirely paid those loans off uh, within 10, 15, 20 years. And so this is a real issue uh, to pay attention to because it affects how students engage in the classroom. It also affects how parents and guardians have conversations with their young people about the value of college. One of the things that I learned in 2023 is that uh, specifically through the work of Corbin Campbell at uh, George Washington, I believe she's either at George Washington University or American University, not remembering right now, but I know Corbin Campbell has done a lot of research on uh, you know quality college teaching. Like how do you know that the quality of teaching at the college level is high? And in talking to parents, and students realizing that when students are asked what leads to a college being good, like how would you define a good college? What are the characteristics of a good college? The number one answer, almost 82% of students said that good teaching, like engaged pedagogy, engaged teaching was the number one marker for a high quality university or high quality college for them. And so our students and families care about the quality of teaching. I have conversations with young people all the time and they'll say things like, oh, why would I go to college when I could just learn that on YouTube? Because YouTube doesn't have a degree in pedagogy. Now, mind you, our professors don't have degrees in pedagogy either. Like a lot of uh, the professors at the college level are not trained educators. And so how can we provide support to professors to not only bring their expertise when it comes to the subject matter into the classroom, but also develop their expertise uh, in awareness of student needs when it comes to uh, teaching and learning and getting the most out of, you know, allowing students to get the most out of their educational experiences. And so this question of how do we even assess the value of college teaching um, is important. And you might be thinking, Jordan, why are you focused so much on teaching? Because that is the, the main value proposition for students. Again, it's the number one thing that students and families have identified as the thing that they care about most. And I guess you could say that what students put on a survey sheet can be different from what's actually guiding their decisions. Like we know how much money universities pump into uh, marketing and branding and advertisement and how much uh, social, a sense of social mobility, a sense of social uh, status and social capital uh, is one of the guiding factors that leads students to choose more selective universities um, and higher ticket universities compared to others. And I think this is also met by uh, college closures that we've seen around the country. And so overall enrollment is down, uh, but at the top level, so when we talk about top 30 universities, top 40, top 50 universities, those universities are seeing record high 
application numbers, record high enrollment numbers, but then the bottom, you know, the bottom of that spectrum, so our smaller universities, our uh, traditionally religious universities that are small, so our small private institutions that have a higher price tag, uh, those types of universities are seeing decreases. Our for-profit universities are really having a hard time getting students into their doors, both physically and virtually. And so the value of college, this conversation around, is college really worth it? And how that message is being relayed to families and students is going to be a key uh, issue to pay attention to in 2023. I'm sorry, in 2024. We're in 2024. So that's the one thing that we want to pay attention to in 2024. Uh, student mental health is the third one. Yeah, we're on number uh, number three? No, 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 that's number four. So number four is student mental health. Now, last year, the U.S. Surgeon General declared adolescent mental health a national emergency, and youth mental health has been a topic in K through 16, really K through 20. I've even seen graduate schools talk about how student mental health is affecting their students and it's something that needs to be paid attention to at all levels. And it's not just implementing a social emotional learning program. It's not just about hiring more staff to uh, meet the needs of students when it comes to counseling. Those things are important, but then also what is the culture that these universities are, are setting when it comes to um, healthy work-life balance, when it comes to uh, competitive culture and grind culture specifically within our elite universities. And I work at one and realizing that some of the students that are having the most uh, trouble are the high achievers, are the ones who you know, quote unquote, grinded in order to get to where they are, right? And so it's happening at all levels, not only within our our high need groups um, that have experienced a lot of trauma through upbringing, our first generation college students, our black, uh, Hispanic, and indigenous students, but then also our students that come from a lot of wealth, our students that might be coming from privilege, international students who are trying to um, you know, kind of immerse themselves within U.S. culture and what that means for them to be away from their families, but to still be in this really restrictive, competitive environment where there's so many hurdles for them to jump through just to get acclimated to their educational experiences. And so, again, student mental health is a big, big thing. And I remember talking with some of my colleagues at Georgetown, one of them uh, presented at uh, the Mary Christie Institute, which is a conference for higher education deans and presidents, so uh, higher ed leaders in the US. And one of the takeaways that my colleague brought from that conference is that there is a lot of hesitancy from university leaders to address student mental health um, because there's almost a level of risk aversion that that my colleague was able to identify in their experience being at the conference because um, very long story short, I help support a faculty fellowship program that helps uh, college professors integrate topics of student well-being into undergraduate courses through curricular infusion. So a lot of that work is being able to connect a staff member at the university, a student facing staff member. So it could be a mental health counselor, it could be a career counselor, uh, any resource that a student can walk into their office or to log on and, and really like receive some sort of counseling or um, you know advice or resource. Uh, 
uh, that students can access, linking that resource or linking those individuals to faculty who are teaching courses around those topics. Um, and one of the biggest challenges that some of the university leaders in that room kind of offered as a pushback on that was, well, what, what if this doesn't, like what if this happens, what if this is not done with care? So what happens when we have professionals who are not mental health professionals, but are trying to address students' mental health through different ways um, that don't involve counseling. Now, um, obviously there might be some, some mixed views about that, but really a lot of it is doing some of that proactive, preventative work with students so that students themselves can not only understand what a mental health emergency might look like for them and be able to make decisions that are more um, conducive to allowing the university structures to move more uh, you know, freely to be able to support the needs of all students, right? So not like overloading the system with students who have a range of issues but are all kind of being classified within emergency level uh, perspective, but also giving students the tools to be able to resist harmful situations, resist harmful environments, resist harmful cultures that might lead to uh, compromised mental health down the line and doing some of that preventative work uh, too. And so again, student mental health is a big uh, issue in 2024. And then lastly, uh, just teaching and learning trends in general. Um, I, I want to shout out Ed Surge. If you're not locked into the Ed Surge podcast, uh, please listen to that. Jeff Young, he's great. He's a Georgetown alum. Uh, he's the host of that show. And they did a whole episode on uh, Justin Reich's research where he talks about the importance of communities of practice, the importance of uh, teachers talking to each other about their teaching, uh, which happens less often than one would think, especially in higher education where there are some professors that never talk to any professors within their own department, let alone professors from other departments. And so getting teachers to talk to each other about what's working in the classroom, about the different things that they're seeing from students. Uh, there was a TikTok video that went viral or a series of TikTok uh, videos that went viral about uh, innovative teaching practices, some that are hip hop uh, pedagogy based, some that are uh, engaged pedagogy based. There was one uh, researcher, and I'll have to grab the name for you all, but um, he's popular. He was popular for his book, and the book took off, but specifically teachers that were trying out the practices that the book was recommending, those videos took off too, and it featured standing only classrooms. So literally you would have a traditional K through 12 classroom where you might have a desk at the front of the classroom and you might have a collection of, uh, you know, four square desks. So you have like these little pods of four and five students. Uh, there were teachers that completely removed that and then students came into the classroom. They're standing up, they're moving around, they're using uh, all walls of the classroom. There's no front of the classroom when students are doing group work. They have the standing boards uh, that are mobile so that when 
students are doing a group project, it's not that weird thing where one student has the sheet of paper in front of them in the notes and they're the scribe and then all the students have to look like this and they gotta look like that to see what the other student is doing. Um, and that student might be like monopolizing that paper without even realizing it. Little things like having students stand up but then also having a board, um, you know, having a neutral site where students keep the group notes and where everybody can equally and equitably see what's happening, the ideas that are flowing, and then even be able to go across groups and see how different groups are outlining their ideas. So I'm a teaching and learning nerd, so you know I had to throw this in here. Um, even if you're not an educator, it's important to understand what students are encountering in the classroom and what's possible when it comes to teaching our young people. I think we're moving, I would like to think that we're moving away from uh, restrictions and requirements and I guess I could say I would hope that we're moving away from unhelpful power dynamics where the teacher is the sole keeper of all the knowledge and students have to come in and learn from that teacher. And now the students are seen as the commodity. The students are coming to class because they're excited to engage with other students and learn with other students, realizing that the collective experiences and the collective knowledge of all the students in the class is greater than that of the educator, than that of the faculty. And the faculty developing more of a learning design, more of a facilitation, more of a motivational speaker, like bringing in these different skills to really bring about uh, students learning. So those are all of the topics and trends that I'm looking for in 2024. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about the playbook, student success playbook coming to you next. All right. So now we are at uh, one of my favorite segments, which is called the playbook. And today's playbook is going to be about internships. So I'm going to share three tips around internships that I think are helpful for students, specifically college students, right? Because it's January, the semester just started. But if you want a college internship, if you want a big time college internship that actually pays you money, now is the time to think about that. So number one, if the position doesn't exist, develop the confidence to create it. And I'm going to say it again. If the position does not exist, have the confidence uh, in the wherewithal to create it. And I've literally seen students that have gotten rejected by big, big time internships. I'm one of them. I was applying to NBC Universal. I was applying to Google. I was applying to ESPN. I made the final rounds of interviews, did three and four interviews for these internships, communications internships, and I was getting denied by them. And not only myself, but I've seen other students take the initiative and to call organizations that have a need, that have a problem uh, that they want to solve, or that might not have even considered how an intern could be helpful for their organization. You picking up the phone and saying, hey, my name is Jordan Davis. I'm a communication student at McDaniel College. Have you ever thought about 
having an intern or um, I know a lot of organizations like yours have interns for the summer. I was looking through your website and I didn't see an internship application. Uh, would you be open to having an internship this summer? If so, uh, what might that look like for us? Like having that level of initiative, um, if, the, if the position doesn't exist, feel free to create one. And I've seen students literally land internships and they are the first intern at organizations, at small businesses. And don't discount your small businesses because sometimes the smaller organizations are going to have a more enriching and more hands-on internship position than the big firms, than the big organizations, than the big nonprofits because you're literally carving a path. There are students who take those smaller internships that have a big level of responsibility because that level of support is needed for the organization. When you have an organization that's already so strong and has such a big infrastructure, and you're talking about hundreds and thousands of employees, some of the interns can kind of get lost in the shuffle. Uh, now, there are some really good internship programs, and sometimes the larger corporations have like internship programs where there are several students in the internship you get to learn with them that's valuable too uh, but again let us not overlook those opportunities to create internships if they don't already exist number two tip when it comes to internships don't take rejections personally i struggled with this so much and now that i work in higher ed i realize that being overqualified is a real thing Employers making mistakes and choosing the wrong candidate or the candidate that wasn't the best fit is a real thing like this happens. And so, so often we can internalize when we don't get accepted for something. Oh, it's my fault or I'm not skilled enough for this. And we try to paint a picture of, in our heads of ourselves in the position. And so when it doesn't work out, we can get distraught, we can get frustrated, we can get upset. Uh, but a part of being a successful student and specifically a part uh, of being a student that is a designer, that sees themselves as a designer, is that there are multiple happy versions of you. So just because that opportunity didn't work out for you doesn't mean that you're not cut out for the work or that you're not cut out for that uh, particular position, but the fit wasn't there for one reason or another. And sometimes that's a good thing for you because you might be cutting against the grain when it comes to that company's culture and they might have a culture that's not uh, conducive to your success as an intern, as a student. And so keeping all of that in mind. The last tip on internships is to conduct informational interviews. So not just applying to the position, not just sending the follow-up emails, but doing the work both before and after to connect with people um, that are currently working at the organization, connect with people that be, might be working at other organizations in similar positions that you're interested in, even connecting with other interns to see uh, what the kind of work they're doing to see what kind of work those businesses value so that you can do a little bit of backward design and say, okay, here's how the people in these positions view success when it comes to their interns. This is what a successful intern looks like. Let me try to replicate that so that when I apply, they can already see a successful intern when I apply. So having that level of initiative and foresight and ability to connect with people. Now I know that this is nerve wracking. I'm a professional speaker and I'm a social butterfly and it's still nerve wracking for me to ask just for a connection. And a framing that I found helpful is that 
we're focusing less on connections and more on relationships. And so a connection can be there, but it could be a weak connection. Um, it could be a connection that's not really serving you. It could be a connection that just kind of sits there. Like you have familiarity with somebody or you've done the work to connect with somebody with, uh, you know, via LinkedIn. Well, what does that relationship look like? And when you approach those conversations and you have good questions, you're inquisitive about the pain points and the problems that that organization has, not only internally, but externally as they go about doing their work. That's the thing that's going to capture the attention of employees and really say, wow, even if it's not the key decision maker. That's the other part too. A lot of us as students, we try to identify, okay, who's looking at the applications? Um, who is actually reviewing the applications that are coming in? But sometimes it's the person in the department that you want to work in. That's the key relationship that you need to build because when the HR person goes to the person on the videography team to kind of get uh, a second opinion on a particular candidate or when they start looking through applications and they send it out to the team to do one final check, that relationship can be the difference maker for you again. And so when we run the play, number one, if the position doesn't exist, don't be afraid to create one. Number two, don't take rejections. Personally, they're a part of all of our experiences. And just because you didn't get it doesn't mean that you are the problem. And then number three, don't be afraid to conduct informational interviews. I know it's nerve wracking. I know it could be uncomfortable to talk about ourselves and to ask for these things. But nine times out of 10, the person that you're reaching out to, they had to conduct informational interviews to get to where they are. And they will be more than happy to assist you in your journey. And so lastly, last but certainly not least, we've got the weekly read. Uh, and I wanted to talk a, a little bit about Claudine Gay's resignation uh, from Harvard University after coming under fire for being accused of plagiarism and accusations of anti-Semitic remarks made during uh, a US House committee hearing in early December. Now, I'm not here to comment specifically on the allegations. I'll leave that to the journalists and the professionals for whom that is their job. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about who Claudine Gay is and kind of what she represents for higher education. Um, I think to narrow focusly on to, you know, to kind of focusly narrow on whether Claudine Gay uh, actually plagiarized or the extent to which she did or didn't, uh, it would kind of minimize what's actually happening here. And kind of in my view, it's a university that might not have been ready for a black president at the time, Claudine Gay is the first uh, black president in the history of Harvard. She's the first black female president in the University of Harvard, uh, at, at Harvard University. And I think that means a lot here. And I've heard Ta-Nehisi Coates talk uh, about this in reference to the Obama administration, that Obama was uh, a great president, but he was never the president that uh, the majority of black America needed him to be uh, in saying that the the likability factor, the social dance that you have to do in order to land the presidency, kind of the the inability to use words like white supremacy, the inability to use words that go against the status quo, the inability to really transform the system through your position of power because of the 
kind of the, the whiteness around you and, and kind of what's around you uh, and the microscope that you're under and the fact that in order to get that presidency, you have to be well liked by a lot of people. Um, you know, realizing that change doesn't necessarily come from the top, especially when we talk about national change, um, at least today in 2024, a lot of it doesn't come from the top. And so when we look at Claudine Gay's presidency uh, in her six months, realizing that this is this might be a, a near impossible position for anybody to to be in, to be able to lead a campus through um, what is absolutely uh, turmoil and harm and a lot of combativeness and destructiveness that's happening on campus. But there's also a lot of opportunity when it comes to how engaged students are in the conversation about the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. And so when I say that former President Claudine Gay uh, at Harvard wasn't what Harvard was prepared for, it's saying that having a black female president, having a, uh, you know, a black woman president leading one of the most prominent institutions in the world. I think Claudine Gay was ready for that. But I don't think Harvard University or our country was ready for that. And it definitely showed in how uh, her resignation played out. And so I highly encourage you to kind of look at um, you know, Claudine Gay, try to read up a little bit more on that. Uh, the Harvard Management Company um, is made up of 12 board members. That was the board that uh, Claudine Gay was not only on, but had to report to. Um, and kind of they kind of helped facilitate her, her resignation, or at least the details around it. And so it's a really unfortunate situation that we have um, another black leader in higher education who's had to leave. I hope that she finds peace. I hope that she finds uh, the next opportunity to be a disruptor and to be a change agent uh, the way that she sees fit. And uh, I, I really hope well for the students, faculty and staff at Harvard. Uh, it's not easy being a college student today. It's not easy working at an educational institution today. And I think uh, a lot of that showed in how this uh, particular situation played out. And so with that, uh, I want to end the podcast today. Uh, my name is Jordan Davis. If you're watching on YouTube, please, 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 please hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you're new here, if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, please make sure that you uh, leave a review and I hope to see you in the next episode.